Ritual is a big thing. It quietens the mind. It's a discipline and it reassures me. Including kind of preparing the canvas, cleaning it, making sure there's no grease or dirt on it, wiping it down with a soft cloth with a bit of turps, um, then brushing it and then slightly agitating the surface if I'm going to paint on it and adding what they call a couch, which is a, a layer of medium rubbed in, which it helps adhesion. So I do all of these kind of things and mix the paint very carefully and therefore I feel that I've given myself every possible positive start to make the thing work as best as it can. The artistic gene, which I'm so blessed to have, has caused me to have a very blessed life, sometimes a very anxious life. James just wanted to paint. That was all he wanted to do. Many of the portraits I have done have enabled me to reach into other people's lives. I think now he was about four when he started painting. That has given me a great variety of personal experience and of fulfillment, actually. He used to birthday cards for us, Christmas cards, all kinds of cards for us. And we used to be so thrilled to get them. <laughs> In the secondary school, every year at the end of the year, He'd do a portrait of the teachers. They'd be put in the staff room, but the lads would see them because James would show them off, you know. And there'd be a great... Uh, they'd be all looking forward to seeing them, you know, at the end of the year. And there was one teacher who had a very bad nose. He had an awful temper, and he did emphasise the nose. <laughs> If I catch you drawing me one more time, I'll have you thrown out of the school. For the papal visit in 1979, which was a seminal moment in our recent history, uh, when John Paul II came to Ireland, and there was this huge mass in the Phoenix Park. I think over a million people turned out. Like Saint Patrick, I do have a voice. Coming up now to the top of the vantage point where the altar was situated, which is marked by the papal cross, essentially a, a beam designed by Scott Talon Walker, architects. So there was a competition in my school to uh, do a poster to commemorate the event. So I drew the Pope with his signature crucifix. He had this very particular stylized crucifix. And I have the papal cross in the background. And I have the then Archbishop of Dublin, uh, Dermot Ryan. I have the Cardinal, Tomaso Fee. And I have the President, Patrick Hillary, in top hat, and Jack Lynch in top hat, the Taoiseach. And I have Gareth Fitzgerald, and I have some other minister. It's quite interesting that I was painting these people in their finery, and later I would paint uh, an Archbishop of Dublin and a Taoiseach and a president. I haven't got around to painting a Pope yet, but it's not too high on the agenda. Um, so I won this competition in 1979, and it was really the beginning of 
a belief that I could, uh, I could, well, whatever about making a living, nobody knew that at the time, but that I could do this and could enjoy this and was uh, kind of uh, swept along by the moment and wanted to record it and felt some sense of the history and the sense of occasion. Good afternoon, Chairperson, Adjudicator, Members of the Opposition, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hilda O'Keefe and I am the lead speaker for the UCD debating team. My teammates and I are... But I didn't go to NCAD straight from school. I actually went to UCD and ended up doing all the weekly Ellen H posters. That's the Literary and Historical Debating Society for the then auditor, Eamon Delaney. So in a way, I kept my hand in with making art, but it was through these posters. These were a dramatic addition yeah. to the campus life visually because all the other posters were sports posters done uh, either printed crudely or else done uh, handwritten with markers. And the next thing we had these images, which were really a form of art or pop art, Dada, Situationist, Surrealism that James had done. They were big, big posters, yeah, you know, yeah. um, and they're memorable. And people mm. used to take them down and, and nick them and bring them and put them up in their bedsits and wrap yeah. lines around yeah. So it was very much that kind of energy. And they were very provocative. They def we definitely sensationalized the debates, there's no doubt about it. Um, and they were black and white. I hadn't thought yeah. about that, James. Actually, yeah. Of course. I keep forgetting we're yeah. living in the, the colour age, know, you know. Yeah. And we also had very dramatic uh, motions for debate. So art is a hammer, not a mirror. Mm. Even think about it. You know, um, some of them, uh, have, women have finally reached equality. So they're quite provocative, you know. But if you look at the um, speakers here, we've got Sean McBride, Amazing. son of, you know, Maud Gahn. Uh, former chief of staff of the IRA, apparently. Robert Fisk. Uh, they're all deceased now, a lot of them actually. Well, yes. Conor Cruz O'Brien, of course, needs no introduction. Lord Henry Mount Charles. And that's dry. Now, that's the Pope's attempted assassination yeah. of Don Paul. Um, it was a big deal. At it the was time. a big thing. Huge. And then you've got the quote that terrorists have been shot, the, yeah. the, the, the commentator. And it's that decaying graphic, which is kind of slightly dally but slightly mm. also that a bit of everything yeah. yeah the logo was always great to do the Ellen Hayes it was always just a great really yeah, strong yeah well it's, it's the oldest debating society it's older than the college itself yes so it's an illustrious tradition which has constantly been deconstructed or subverted by the students and the members to make mm -hmm. it modern and you know sort of, it's both establishment as is reflected but also rebellious as well but this is very interesting every man to make himself a capitalist yeah. because we're in a very left-wing era now in my opinion but here we've got great guests again Albert Reynolds former Taoiseach Ray sure. McSharry Mac the Knife is yeah. his nickname because of the cuts yeah. and uh, John yeah. Rogers Vincent yeah. Brown of course was always Brown. willing to come but again lots of black white yeah. on black yeah. compilation oh. composite of images uh, this is text here. That, yeah, uh, it is, yeah. Tremendous, James. It, really is, it is weird looking back on them, actually. You know, if you put that up in the They were done like uh, Seas of the Pants, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Were they? Yeah, yeah they, they were, yeah. All night or something. Well, yeah. yeah, they were, but 
doing these posters to a deadline every week on my bedroom floor at home when maybe the guest speakers weren't known until the 11th hour kept you on a knife edge and you had to forage for images on old newspapers and library books that you could draw from and and develop. This was a pre-digital age but more than that it gave me an income so suddenly I was doing these posters and making money and being involved with College Society and seeing them up on the walls and uh, it it was a fantastic time. UCD gave me the three happiest years of my time in formal education in in Ireland. And the benefit of studying art history meant that I was in a small department, very intimate, where I got to make great close friends. So it made all the difference in the vast campus to be in this beautiful, small jewel of a department. So one of the absolute critical people that I met in that period was Professor Alistair Rohn, the head of department. First thing I did when I came to the department was I set up a staff student committee now my colleagues were amazed at this, that we would pay any attention to what the boys and girls thought about the course that they were getting. But twice a term we got together and inevitably ideas came forward. The thing about UCD in those days was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. We had an easy come and go. Now when James came, uh, once he got comfortable in the department, by third year when I had introduced a course on the history of art history, which was where do our ideas come from about what is good in art and what is not good in art and why do things. And James came up to me, he he paused, he saw me somewhere in in the forecourts of the college and he came over to me and he said, that was a great class we had yesterday afternoon. Now that sort of thing is gold dust. For a teacher, you know, how many people come? And he wasn't sucking up. There was no, there was no suck up element in James Hamley, uh, but it was genuine. And and when you get a sort of genuine comment like that, it's it's very important. I was very keen on visits to the National Gallery, and James talks yeah. about them being fun. Yeah. There, you there's you could put people in front of a Van Dyke portrait, the Lomellini family or something like that, or St. Francis, and you would say, now, stand in the pose of that figure, and and your student would get up and would look at the picture and would turn around and would put one foot pointing north and the other heel in another direction, and they'd finally get themselves into the most contorted pose, Mm. and you'd say to all the rest of the class, look how contorted Seamus is, Mm. but yet he's right. You look at the painting of St. Francis, you don't see what a weird guy he is mm-hmm. until we start uh, involved yeah. in, involving ourselves in it. Put your nose up to the painting. What do you think? Can you see where this has been used as a scumble? And yeah, all those exactly. practical things, exactly. they work very well. We were taught to look up, look really closely at paintings, see the weave of the canvas and how they use the ground for all the darks or the mid-tones, you know, and yeah. see how little paint sometimes is on the canvas. And see also you know? how suddenly, if you look at the canvas, the artist has added an extra foot That's right, all yeah. down one side yeah. because the, the, the client wanted a bigger picture for his room. Yeah. And so the thing had to be eked out. And yeah. it's, it's, so many people don't realise that the paintings will tell their own story. Yeah. If you just go up and have a look at them and start asking yourself a question. I first came upon Stephen Campbell 
in a Channel 4 documentary that was shown to us in our Art History and Appreciation class in NCAD by Joan Fowler. The tradition I see myself part of is, is something from Hogarth, Joseph Ride of Derby, people like David Hockney, uh, rather than a Scottish tradition. It's, a, it's a, more to do with, a kind of, with, a, with art as a, as a kind of form of play and, and uh, literary content. And it was a Channel 4 documentary made about these wonderkins, uh, Stephen Campbell and Adrian Wyszynewski, who was of uh, Polish extraction, uh, but a Scottish painter. And they, along with two other painters, Peter Housen and Ken Curry, had uh, really taken the world by storm with their paintings, large figurative paintings, very, very bold, uh, strident, strong narratives, very distinctive styles. And I found them very inspiring, particularly Campbell. So really, I think really it's, it's as much to do with, with the information that, that, that I, can, I can work from. I can't work from nothing. I have to have something. And if you have, if you have a, a, a massive amount of information, then it's much easier to, to pervert and subvert. It's not necessarily creating a hybrid, but something similar to that. His paintings were large, they were completed in a week. He painted a lot from the, the imagination and from references. He drew, he drew imagery from all kinds of sources, um, Victorian pattern books, uh, old illustrated boys' own magazines and books. And he made these kind of tableau, uh, which had lots of meaning, but no particular meaning, because in a way they were all about the impossibility to nail any particular meaning from in a visual complex um, circuit board of imagery that were his paintings. And the tutor said something like, well, they've had success that you got, you people won't have. And it was a really off-the-cuff comment, but it was, it was quite a hurtful comment. It was almost like, well, this, was, this is an aberration, their success. So I said, well, there you go. Well, I'm going to go to Glasgow and I'm, I'm inspired by these and I'm going to just let it inform my painting. And it did. And I went then on an exchange at Glasgow School of Art. My name is Alistair Wallace uh, and I went to Glasgow School of Art between 1987 and 1991, studied painting. Uh, in 1990, January of 1990, I went on an exchange to NCAD Dublin and James Hanley went in the opposite direction. It is amazing because most art colleges in the world, they, in, they inhabit pre-existing building. It's not necessarily a purpose-built art school, whereas Glasgow, like NCAD, was a whiskey distillery. Glasgow was a purpose-built art school by the celebrated Scottish architect Charles Rennie Mackintosh, and it's an Art Nouveau masterpiece, one of the most famous buildings in the world, and certainly in Scotland. The building was on Renfield Street, near the summit of an area called Garnet Hill, uh, so it's quite a steep street. And then there's a sort of sweeping curved set of stairs at the front and then these kind of old swing doors with the Art Nouveau stained glass and there's sort of brass panels on the door which said art school on each door and they, they got quite nice and smudged with oil painty fingers and all that you know it just had a sort of patina of 100 years of grubby art students and then you walk through those doors and you're in the, the hallway and it's um it's a kind of atrium, the stairs that go around a little uh, reception box where the Janny sat. And then up this beautiful wooden staircase to this gallery space, the corridors went extended from this central atrium. It was called the museum, which was just a big exhibition space. It was full of plaster casts of classical statues, things like that. To the west and the east, there was corridors that would lead to the studios that were on the front of the building facing north. Which is the optimum uh, light for painting because it delivers a, a cool blue light. 
you're not affected by direct sunshine, which could come into a room and alter the colours and uh, make you half-blinded trying to trying to look at your canvas. Perfect painter's light. You know? And of course, they were designed to house a half a dozen students or something, but in our day, there was maybe 10 or 15 people working in it. Magnificent building. Uh, the library, which was beside the studio I was in, was one of Charles Rennie Mackintosh's greatest achievements. It had these beautiful hanging lights, beautiful desks, bookcases, etc., which were destroyed in the first fire in 2014, but which were recreated perfectly uh, to be installed just before the 2018 blaze engulfed and destroyed the whole building. Scottish Fire Rescue Service Operations Control Johnson received a call stating there was a building alight at 167 Renfrew Street, Glasgow. This was the Glasgow School of Art. The control room mobilised a predetermined attendance of Tango 01 Alpha 1, Tango 01 Alpha 2, I felt like I owned that building really because I'd been going there since I was a kid, you know, going to Saturday morning classes, uh, evening classes while I was studying elsewhere before I went to art school. And yeah, I just, you know, I'd, the kind of the smell of it and everything was just totally ingrained with me, you know, so I'm totally, uh, totally in mourning for it, you know. It's totally gone. It'll never be the place that, that I loved, even if it's completely rebuilt. You know, there will be a different thing. While I was at Glasgow School of Art, one of the paintings I did, simply called Untitled, I put it into the RHA exhibition, the annual exhibition, when I got back to Dublin in 1990. And it was the first painting I ever exhibited. And I won the major award, the Keaton McLaughlin Medal, and I got a thousand pounds, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe the first painting I ever exhibited. I won this medal and this award, and I ran around to make to call my mum from an old payphone, and it, 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 it was the turning point of my life. And suddenly, it was possible for me to be an artist, and I was I was off the blocks, you know. Tactics count very heavily in this race. Too long for sheer speed, too short for simple endurance. I was able to rent a studio during that summer, summer of 1990, which was a crazy, brilliant summer. The uh, Italian 90, everybody was feeling fantastic to be Irish. So there was a great feel-good factor. It was also a very beautiful summer. Straight in into my degree show year, and there was nine paintings, and I was just just thrilled at this first body of work together. When I was in NCAD, we didn't have degree shows. We just relied on, you know, going out there into the big bad world and hauling our stuff around all the galleries and hoping that somebody might buy. But at some stage, the, the college got organised and they started the degree show, usually in the college. Occasionally it was in the RHA or other big, big venues. And that was a place where you could go and find an up-and-coming artist for very little money, generally. And it was a great place to start a collection. The buyers tended to be younger people, partly because it's a young, obviously it's a young college and they would have friends and the friends would come along and buy, maybe buy something small or their parents would buy their auntie and uncle, all of that kind of thing. But also the galleries came and had a look and uh, possibly maybe not not on the spot would they give a, a, a nod to somebody, but they would certainly put them in the file, as it were, and look later on, see how they do. We rented the RHA, the Royal Hibernian Academy, and our degree show was in there, up in Gallery 1. 
all over the gallery actually, but my, my works were in Gallery 1. And um, I got a, an award called the Taylor Art Award from the RDS, which was £1,500 uh, pulled at the time, which was, again, it seemed to be one thing after another was happening for me. Everything was just on a roll. I sold this, the nine paintings. They were very kind of evocative romantic paintings about childhood and about certain kind of boys' own adventures, always with the threat of uh, darkness, the threat of some kind of... Uh, the whiff of danger was, it was always just very... I'm Bernadette Madden and I'm an artist. And I met James Handley first in his degree show. I was bowled over by his picture and I bought it. I used to save up money every month into the post office. And when I had enough money, I bought a picture. And his was the picture I bought one year. Then Bernadette Madden, uh, who's become a very good friend, brought Bree Jukes, who owned the River Run Gallery, to see the show. And she took him on in the gallery and as he says himself he got the girl as well because he met her daughter and married her. Reed then offered me my first solo show in the River Run which happened the following year in November 1992. Reed's daughter Orla was manning the desk and were married for seven years yesterday. Yeah so it was amazing I met Orla. Spent that whole year doing 40 paintings, put them on the wall so when I went in and saw Orla I didn't have to do any small talk. Because I did all my talking on the wall. Boom, boom, as they say. I'm Christine Leach and I'm an art critic and writer. James Hanley's portrait of Ronnie Delaney in the National Gallery of Ireland is an interesting example of his work, but also a really, um, a really good example of how to do a commissioned portrait for an official institution. It was commissioned as part of the Irish Life and Permanent Portrait series. I suppose what James is trying to do here is make sure that you know exactly who you're looking at. Even if you don't read the wall label, you're going to be able to figure out something about this man. When you're commissioned to make a portrait of somebody, one of the tasks is to make a likeness that people will look at and remember the person. And the other task is to add context so that the viewer can understand something about the person. So we see a man sitting on a chair and it's really obvious this man is an athlete. We have an Olympic poster there from Melbourne, 1956. Although he's clearly a retired athlete now and he's looking back possibly on the, on, on the memories behind him, which are literally on the wall behind him. So you can see that he's surrounded by the memorabilia of his career. So you have those posters on the wall behind. You have the photograph of him running. He's wearing a suit jacket. He has a white turtleneck on and some nicely pressed trousers and he has black leather polished shoes. And I think as well on the ground, and this is something you mightn't notice until you've stared for a while at the picture, there are two lines either side of the chair, these white lines on the ground. So when you first look at it, you think, oh, he's sort of sitting in some sort of hall somewhere, maybe the wall is painted blue at the top and red at the bottom behind him. But then you realise he's actually in between two running lines. So he is on a racetrack there as well. Um, and those are kind of subtle things because you don't really realise that. You think that's just floorboards the first time you look at it. But the more time you spend looking, the more you see the clues that the portrait artist has put into it. He's also looking forwards. He's looking directly at you. Um, his eyes are meeting yours. And on the ground next to him, you have his running shoes. And the running shoes are just sort of flung there, which I think is really interesting. It adds a bit of dynamism to the composition. But the other thing about his positioning and the way that he's holding himself is he looks almost like he's about to take off running. 300 yards to go. Hewson seems to be holding on. 
They're almost there. So he's not just sitting in a chair. He's actually got one leg forward and one, one knee bent, um, and he's propped up a little bit on the, on the toe of the right foot. Look, that man in the green shirt, where did he come from? So he looks like he's almost in the starting blocks. It's the Irish miler, Ron Delaney. He's flying now. Fourth. Third. Second now. He's actually sprinting. He doesn't seem to be tired in the least bit. He's coming on like an express train. He's passing Houston, and Houston seems powerless to catch up. Delaney wins. His surprise victory in the record time of 3 minutes 41.2 seconds is one of the most unexpected sensations of the games. Ron Delaney, running for Ireland, couldn't be beaten. You know, it's a great experience uh, going through the process of having a portrait done. I looked like a fit man, well-preserved old man. Uh, I looked like the way I'm sitting in the chair. I looked like I'm about to spring forward. Now, my experience of doing it with him was going in, sitting many, many times, never seeing any of the work. I did never want to see any of the work. And eventually, it's all finished. And I'm invited up to his lovely home, and I'll meet all and he, he sends me into the room on my own, where the portrait is. Now, I hadn't seen a bit of it. I go into the room, and there I'm looking into my own soul. Uh, and I love it. And I admire it from the first moment. And I know he's captured me, and I know it's a great portrait. Ask me why I keep that in my pocket every day, my Art Award Sig Z 1978 James Handel. Because it was in a, in a box at home and I kind of thought, why is it in a box at home, you know? Now I, and I would, I would hate to lose it and I would keep it there in this box at home. But why is it in this box at home? So I have it every day, even though it's going to get battered, it's going to get chipped, already the edges are getting chipped. Uh, maybe the inscription is going to get slightly worn away. But I keep it in my pocket, then I hold on to it for some kind of uh, just good luck or something, you know? And uh, it's also the medal that my, my friend Brian, who took his own life, he had a similar medal that he got the same year for, for, for first in the class. And I treasured that for 31 years until the day I gave it back to his father in 2018 when I said, John, you don't have anything belonging to Brian, your son. I want you to have this, you know? So I think it was partly that, having that, and then I thought, well, things aren't forever, you know? So I gave away the most treasured possession I have, which was Brian's medal, back to his father. And now I take mine, and I, 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 I keep it in my pocket, and I may lose it, and so what? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of opened up that kind of uh, idea of not to be too precious anymore about anything. Orl asked me to get this tattoo. It's a semicolon, and I didn't realize it, but it's become very universal in the last number of years. And it's um, it's like a little secret code um, that you belong to some kind of a club or that where you've had some kind of trauma or some kind of, let's say, catastrophic event in your life, um, which you survived or which you, which you triumphed over or which you got through. And um, the semicolon, by its nature, means that this is a pause, but it wasn't the end. A pause, and then you recontinued. 
So uh, just as a reminder of that, and uh, you know, did lots of people go through difficulties in their lives, and I, I was the same. Went through a, a, a dark period and a, a potentially catastrophic period, but it's over through it. And uh, this little this little tattoo reminds me. Is there to remind me, and there maybe to you get a knowing look and a knowing smile sometimes from people because you realise that there isn't a soul walking the planet who hasn't had uh, trial or tribulation in their own lives, you know. So it's not anything to be indulgent about or to be, uh, you know, shouting from the rooftops because it's it's the stuff of life, isn't it? So I would have first encountered James Hanley's work. I would say as part of the RHA annual exhibitions. I think that's probably where I would have first seen his work. And the RHA annual is a show that if you're working regularly as a critic for a mainstream newspaper, at least up until recently, you would have been sent every year to cover it. And I think initially when I first saw his work, I regarded him as an official portrait painter, you know, somebody who was making commissioned works uh, with the particular purpose, because a commissioned portrait has a job to do. And that would explain why when, you know, this is probably eight years later, I saw his life drawing pictures and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And of course, you're saying like it's more interesting to me as a critic. I'm finding this more interesting. So, you know, I always rail against the idea of the critic's word being the final word on anything or some sort of like ultimate authority. I don't think that's useful. I think of the critic as being part of an ongoing conversation because those life drawings for me showed a side of his artistic practice that hadn't been made public before and that I hadn't seen. And I thought he was taking risks. He wasn't finishing them carefully. He was allowing bits to be blurry or messy. And he he told me when I spoke to him that he had taken the approach, what if this is the last image I ever make? What if this is my last painting? And I feel as a critic, when you stand in front of a work which has that energy in it, and he did put that energy into all of those works because they were made in the life room in front of the nude model with his peers and, and fellow artists around him also working in that space. So it had a certain atmosphere. I feel when you put that into the work, the viewer feels it back. And I felt it when I saw those works. It's kind of the only time that you get 20 people in a room all engaging with the same subject matter and that the subject matter is a living person. So there's an energy coming back as well. Uh, it's a very unique experience. I started off modelling um, uh, in fashion. That was, yeah, really helpful for me to kind of have that sort of body confidence and um, awareness to sort of Thinking of myself when I'm in certain poses as what do I actually look like? That's sort of what fashion modelling helps you know and understand. And it's also like training, you know, it's a kind of, it's like doing a workout or something, you know, keeping those muscles trained. You know, I can see why people would feel it's a bit of an anachronism to, why would there be a naked person in the room? You often a woman, why would you, what is that? Why would you join them? That was the artist Una Seeley. And I am Joanne Northey, a regular life drawing model in the RHA, a fashion model and also an artist myself. It's key to understanding about uh, tone and line and composition and figure to ground relationships. And you also have the added visceral impetus of somebody live in front of you. So yeah, I'll just get into position and I get to choose the poses myself as well. I don't, I'm not sure if people know that, but generally, yeah, the model chooses the poses and also for me like I, 
I am an artist, so I do look at a lot of like art references. So yeah, I try to choose poses um, even from paintings that will be kind of dynamic or kind of evoke an emotion. Just to learn how to draw, if you can draw a human figure and you can draw anything, it's the most difficult thing there is to draw. And also, everybody loves doing it. It's very enjoyable. There's a great atmosphere in the room and you just, you leave it and never retouch it afterwards. Um, there's an energy, an energy comes off these works which is, you can't fake, basically. It'll start off with shorter poses, five minutes or so, a number of them, and then it will move into 10, 15. The fast poses are really good for kind of warming up. Because life drawing for me is sort of like training your eye to draw what you see and not what you think you see. And then the longest pose would be 25 minutes. Um, but it's always 25 minutes and then a five minute break. You know, artists would pretty much work in isolation and you'd, know, you'd have one or two colleagues you would know, but suddenly we became colleagues with a really wide group of people. Great friendships were built as well and great kind of respect for each other's work. When you see, see somebody actually doing their work, it really just added so much uh, because we, we learned from each other as well. Artists, you know, it's quite competitive. So, you know, you really, you know, people were in here and like tried to perform at the top of their game. A lot of people might think that life drawing modeling is kind of like playing statues, where you're sort of frozen um, and staying extremely static and still. What you're trying to do is you're trying to embody the pose and trying to feel the kind of gesture of it and the emotion of it. Um, meditate on that and there is something about the artists kind of in your peripheral vision and then kind of working away that is really kind of relaxing and uh yeah that they're kind of witnessing you in this meditative state like it is actually in a way healing or something <laughs> yeah you know, we're called the Royal Hibernian Academy and some people would you know take issue with the royal aspect of it but uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate about this over the years, but uh, if you think about it, if you take the R of it, we'll be called the HA, and the um, the associate members will be the AHAs, and the honorary members will be the HAHAs. So that's that's one reason why we're probably going to keep the Royal Hibernian Academy for the moment, anyway. For me, James Handy is an extraordinary artist and he's also an entertainer and he entertains in his art. Well, my name is John McCalgan. I am, I suppose, or at least I try to be a patron of the arts. And I was in a house one night and I saw a portrait that he'd done of Cahaldo Shannon, who was also a friend of mine. And I asked Carl's wife, who was that? And she said, that's James Hanley. So I sought out and found James. And from that day on, uh, we developed a great creative and personal friendship. And uh, I was on the board of the Abbey Theatre at the time. And I asked James to consider doing a major piece for the Abbey Theatre, which he did. Maureen Potter, I had worked with for many years and I loved her very much. I did a documentary on her and an extraordinary person. And when I found out that James was a fantastic 
portrait interpreter of the, not just the surface of the person, but inside the person asked him, would he kindly do a portrait of Maureen Potter, which would hang in the Gaiety Theatre. Um, he did that and I'm, I'm uh, standing under that portrait at the minute and I'm looking up at this wonderful woman which James captured in her later years on stage in the Gaiety Theatre and you can see the theatre lights and you can see her wonderful expression, her looking at the audience and James managed to capture all of that. And if the listener looks at Maureen, or if one stands in the gate and looks at Maureen, she's certainly in mid-performance. She's making a very dramatic theatrical gesture. Her hands are in the air and she looks like she's about to burst into song. When he came over with his palette, I said to him, what's the rush? But when he took out his brush, oh, all I could do was brush. He painted a nun and a singer, a doctor, and a dancer, an actress, and a comedian. In all my variety, I was always me from the beginning, right up to the very end. Because a painting, it's a world. This one's the story of a girl whose hands became a cast for the small prints outside on the footpath. Oh, they're so cute. <laughs> Who would have thought that I'd end up in a picture? Hanging above up here for all the years. Forevermore you can see me do me grand finale. Taking a You know, when I came from a background of, uh, you know, parents who expected that you would earn your living from your college experience, um, and they didn't really know what, what was a life of an artist going to be, uh, how it might pan out, could it be successful, could it be sustainable even. And so all these things that happened at that early stage uh, gave my parents great hope and comfort, and they were buzzed about the whole thing because it was a world that they didn't uh, know particularly, it's a world I didn't know particularly, and yet they saw success and they loved every every turn of the road that I went down. Yeah, so this friend of mine, Jim Halpin, who's a, an architect, he thought this was very funny and he, he contrived a letter that I was sending to Sir Bob's solicitors on behalf of, my, of myself. Dear Mr. Geldof, we have been requested by our client, Mr. James Hanley, the esteemed painter, raconteur and humorist, to act for him in the matter outlined below. That at a recent reception held in the Royal College of Physicians, you expressly failed to respond in a suitably jovial manner to a humorous sally by the aforementioned. I have a friend and he has sex every day at 95. The problem is he lives at 93. <laughs> Jesus. The breach of the law certificate was further exacerbated by your comment that our client should not give up the painting. Mr. Hanley is utterly at a loss to understand your behaviour, having only minutes earlier soft soap you by identifying you as his hero. The consequence of your actions for our client have been severe, including one, reputational damage. His previous associates are now questioning the validity of other jokes deemed funny at the time. Two, an increased lack of self-esteem. 
tapped me on the shoulder and he said, uh, don't give up the painting. And he walked away. So I spent the whole meal trying to think of a funnier joke to tell him afterwards. Don't meet your heroes, as they say. Shh. Here we see the contemporary artist in their natural habitat, the solitary studio. This particular specimen seems quite adjusted to endless hours of toil at the easel. But what is not clear from this picture is that the introversion involved here shows nothing of the social extremes that this animal, the artist, must conquer to survive and flourish in the vigorous environment of opening night. It's just nice to have the bit of time yourself just to look at it and uh, just check everything and um, just enjoy it, you know. And sometimes people think, oh, you know, why are you looking at your own work? Why are you looking at your own work? And so you're really looking at it because sometimes when you haven't seen it for a couple of weeks or whatever, or you've been very close to it, and you suddenly see it framed in a different context, and you can kind of uh, be at peace with it, actually. There's something about when it's in the frame, and the frame is beautifully done, and it's... It's UV sensitive gla- UV filtered glass, and it's beautiful cradled at the back to support the corners of, of the frame. So it's there. For, it's a good product, you know. So you know you're giving it the best chance in the world, and I've used the best materials. And so you kind of think, yeah, okay, you sign off on that. So you're kind of going, I've done the best I can with that. I'm pleased, and it's going now somewhere. My poem, The Painter on His Bike, which I wrote for James Hanley, came to me in a most, I suppose, unusual way. Um, It was a few years ago and I was involved in an arts project with inner city school children. And I was working around the theme of a portrait of the city. And I thought, I know, I'm going to invite a portrait artist in who I really admire. And that was James. I really love his work. And I asked him, would he come in and just talk about things that inspire him as an artist? So James arrived on his bike and he had a big bag of objects that he really loved. There were various things. But one of the things which he held up was a portrait that he had done of his father who had recently died. When I said in front of Enda that Um, the the eyes of my dad's portrait were the eyes that saw me before I saw myself and it was just uh, an off-the-cuff remark that came out of nowhere but obviously it came from somewhere very deep inside me. She picked up on this. And when he said that, I don't know, I just think something moved in me and I found it a very emotional moment. I think Robert Frost, the poet, said that Good poetry begins with a lump in the throat. And I think I I just got this very strong emotional response to what he said. So when James finished up and he went outside and he started gathering his objects up and putting them in a bag, uh, we were standing on Hatesbury Street in Dublin 8 and he began to take off, wobbling down the road on his bike, all, all the bags balancing on the handlebars. And suddenly it came to me, here's a poem. She was able then to extrapolate the, the depth of meaning and soulfulness in, 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 in that comment uh, and translate it into this beautiful 
deceptively simplistic poem which conveyed the same emotion that I felt really in that moment when I looked at the portrait. The Painter on His Bike for James Hanley The painter on his bike balances his father sketched in pencil, wrapped in paper on his handlebars. As he cycles down Hatesbury Street, the twist of string around the frame loosens for a second, catches in the wheel, the painter's breath caught too by the sudden sight of his dead father's eyes. They saw me before I saw myself. He stops at the curb, tugs at the twine, frees it from the spokes, sets off again, the, the bike wobbling, bumping over potholes and tramlines, the picture beating against his knee. He is cycling the portrait home, and later a fire lit, the paper unbound. Father, whose eyes rise up from the face your son drew, like two dark lost moons. You could really drive yourself mad wondering uh, where you are in, in, in the art world because there's no one art world, there are many art worlds and in a sense you create your own art world by your own work. 